So usually these little intros that I do are very much improvised. It's just words I say into the microphone to get myself used to the sound of my own voice again. But today I sat here for like an hour being like, I'm going to have to talk about that. And I'm not entirely sure how relevant this is to a lot of my listeners. I can only judge from the listener statistics, the demographics that I can see. But apparently the TV show Supernatural, which to be fair, I did not even know that was still a thing, is literally out here damning gay people to hell in the year of our Lord 2020. And I haven't watched a single episode of this TV show in years, but I did watch that that the one relevant clip, and I just cannot believe that they've managed to give their gay viewers everything they've wanted since season four, while simultaneously being possibly the most homophobic this show has ever been. I am losing my mind over it. But thankfully, that's not what this podcast is about, so it's 5am, let's go. This is the Loki podcast, a podcast in which I talk about Loki. I'm Annie, you're definitely 100% verifiably human host, and today I'm going to be talking about the Loki comic from 2019, which I'm very excited about. It's a real change of pace from last week when we were talking about the very first mentions of Loki, and now we're jumping straight to probably the most recent mentions of Loki. And I really enjoyed this comic, brief though it was. It's also very close to my heart because the writer Daniel Kibblesmith is seemingly very willing to answer any and all questions on Twitter, which I think is a very bold, creative choice. But before getting on to the actual substantial content of this podcast, let's go through the news and also my DMs. And you guys, I actually have some news to share with you. And yes, I do know this is a rumour, and I know that I said last episode I would not be dealing with rumours on this podcast, but I am a gay person with gay interests, so hearing the rumour that Loki is going to be bisexual and have both a woman and a man as romantic interests in the TV show got me very excited. To be very clear, this is not exactly a new rumour, a lot of people have been talking about this, and the source now claiming to confirm it is a little bit hit and miss, historically speaking. But regardless of how true it is, I just want to express an opinion on it, because what am I here for other than providing you with hot Loki takes? Anyway, Loki has been associated with transgressing ideas of gender and sexuality for a really long time, but it has very rarely been shown in a positive light. In both the myths and the comics, Loki's gender deviance has kind of been used to make us laugh at him or to tell us that he's a bad person, so it makes me really happy when we see him changing between genders or expressing attraction to more than one gender and it's taken seriously and we're not laughing at him or hating him in the moment. We've seen a bit of that in the comics, though to be very clear there is definitely still room for improvement. And it would make me really happy if we got to see that in the MCU as well. And you might be thinking at this point, hey, this isn't news, this is just you expressing an opinion. Yeah, I just wanted to say some things. I hope you enjoyed it. And now onto my DMs. And I do specifically say DMs because I have a small apology to make. I know some of you have been emailing me and I'm really sorry I haven't got back to any of you in a while because I've been having a lot of issues with the whole email thing. My inbox is basically full of an overwhelming amount of emails, many of which should not actually be there and I'm kind of too anxious to deal with, but I've now got a very kind friend dealing with it for me, so hopefully all of that will be solved very quickly. So today this stuff is just going to be from my DMs on Instagram and Twitter, and then next week we'll do the emails. 
But moving swiftly onwards, my first message was from Bella who asked, can you tell us something about Loki's three wives? And the answer is yes, but there isn't all that much to say. The only one who was ever described actually as Loki's wife is Sigyn, and we don't know much about her apart from the fact that she was Loki's wife. Snorri Stellison tells us that they had one child, known as Na'vi or Nari. Elsewhere, however, they seem to have two, since one of them was turned into a wolf and mauled the other one, whose entrails were then used to tie up Loki. In a similar context, Sigyn is also mentioned again as holding a bowl over Loki's face so that the poison for the snake hung over him does not splash down onto him. And that is more or less everything that we know about Sigyn. Loki also had a second woman he was involved with known as Angerbotha, who isn't said to be his wife, but she does bear him three monstrous children, Fenrir, Jormungandr, and Hel. There have been various attempts to identify her with other figures in Norse mythology, but I don't think any of them are really convincing enough to be worth mentioning here. And so as you can tell, we don't really know much about either of those women. It's interesting that they're only really mentioned in relation to Loki's role as one of the main actors against the gods in Ragnarok, but that's all I really have to say about them. Finally, Loki doesn't actually have a third wife. It's something I see said around the place sometimes, but this third wife, who is usually called Glut or Gludh, and she's actually the wife of another person who I will call Loki, and he is probably not the same person as Loki even though the names sound similar, probably. So yeah, there's really not much to say about them. I love them, I'm fascinated by them, but I can't really get into more depth without branching out into theories and ideas. And that would just take up a whole episode and I'm not doing that today. So thank you, Bella, for your question. The next one comes from someone who only identified themselves as Firestarter, which, love that for you. But anyway, they ask, what does the name Loki actually mean? And I'm going to be honest with you, Firestarter, that is quite a question. It's a question that people have argued about a lot, because that's how academics work. But to give you a brief summary of what people vaguely think about it, in general, the word does not mean anything outside of Loki himself. But things get a bit spicier if you get into etymology. For a long time, people thought that it was associated with the Old Norse word logi, which means fire, as previously mentioned in the last question. This is also where the misconception that Loki is a god of fire comes from. But in fact, that's not really how etymology works. It's not enough for two words to simply sound similar. They have to change in a way that makes sense with how things usually work. Which means getting into something called philology. And to be quite honest with you, Firestarter, I did not take that module. But I do know that people who are a lot smarter with these kind of things have said that these two words aren't actually related. I think the leading theory now is that it's related to a word in Proto-Germanic, that is, the language that came before Old Norse, and also all other Germanic languages, which is the root word for our modern word lock, as in lock and key. What exactly that means, and if it has any implication on Loki's character, is unclear. Basically, it's one of those where the more questions you ask, the less you seem to know. But I hope that's some kind of answer for you, Firestarter. And to anyone else wanting to ask questions, you can DM me at Loki Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. And you can email me. I promise I'll be on top of the email thing by next episode. Okay, all right. With all that nonsense out of the way, let's go on to some actual real content. Today I'm talking about Loki 2019, also known as Loki Volume 3 or Kibblesmith's Loki or whatever you want to call it. 
So this is an ongoing series that ran from the middle of 2019 until round about the end of it. It was written by Daniel Kibblesmith, who is famous for writing various funny things, not comics, as well as also comics. Besides Loki, he's also famous for the upcoming New Warriors series, which I know it's controversial, but I am kind of excited for it. And then the artist is Jan Bazaldua, who, first of all, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that name, I have no idea. But more importantly, she's drawn a lot of other stuff for Marvel. My favourite thing that I've read recently was Mr. and Mrs. X, which was so much fun. And onto the comic itself. This series follows on from the events of War of the Realms, which was Marvel's big crossover event just before this comic book started. And it was very Asgardian-centric, so I was obsessed with it naturally. But all you need to know for this episode and to understand what's going on in Loki 2019 is that Thor is now the Allfather and Loki is now King of Jotunheim. I actually mentioned this moment accidentally last episode and essentially this comes about by Loki getting eaten by his own father and then bursting dramatically out of his stomach and announcing that he's king. It's a wonderfully gory and angsty scene and I'm sure it's going to come up again in this episode but moving on. When I was talking about Loki Asian of Asgard, I talked about a post-Avengers Loki. The idea that this comic was kind of designed to answer a lot of the desires of Loki's fanbase at the time. And that idea is still relevant here. This is still a very sympathetic portrayal of Loki. But we're now talking about 2019, last year, which means it's been a while since the kind of initial Loki hype. Which means that a lot of people have come and gone There's a number of people who have been here for quite a long time at this point. And there's also a bunch of new fans. Like, literally, I saw someone on Twitter saying that Endgame was their first Avengers movie, and now they're, like, a hardcore Loki fan. And that was wild to me. I genuinely mean no disrespect to that. I think it's very cool. But as someone who's been involved in some kind of Loki fandom nonsense for almost 10 years now, I guess it's just a little bit surreal. But my inner meditations aside, I think it's probably best to think of this Loki as the Loki era after the era directly after the Avengers, which makes no sense. It's a post-post-Avengers Loki, which means it still has a lot of the same concerns as a Loki comic coming out in 2014. It has a number of different fan bases to answer to. There are going to be some old-school Loki comic book fans who like his old villainous self, and will expect some reference to an established character in this book. I think it's also fair to say that a lot of the fans of this book are going to be newer fans who have possibly recently come over from enjoying Loki in the movies and want to see him in the comics. But there's also going to be this kind of first wave of Loki movie fans who have been on board with comic book Loki since... 2014 or even earlier before Agent of Asgard, who are very aware of a lot of the lore that's accumulated around Loki since his grand rebirth in 2011 around the Siege storyline, and want to see a continuation of everything that's happened with his character over the last 10 years or so. I don't know, maybe I'm projecting. Am I projecting? Maybe I'll do a survey next time. But anyway, the main point here is that a lot has happened to this version of Loki since he was arguably created in 2011. And even though this series had a lot of the same interests and demands as Loki Asian of Asgard, this is a very different kind of book. There are a number of callbacks, of course. Verity Willis makes a return, which is very exciting. And there's a kind of parallel narrative frame in that we begin with Loki falling out of a building and end with him walking off into the unknown with Verity. 
in the kind of fourth wall breaking that we've almost become used to in Loki comics. Loki says, if I'm not cast out of somewhere in the first chapter, would it truly be a Loki story? And it's little details like this that allow the comic to refer to a larger continuity without becoming entirely impenetrable to new readers. In general, I think Marvel is moving more towards this kind of process, just in an attempt to make comics a little bit more accessible to new readers without entirely sacrificing continuity, which has always been a very key concept in comics. But I do think it's something that stands out particularly in this comic, and Daniel Kipplesmith did say that this is a story about Loki kind of rejecting the position handed to him in War of the Realms and going off and doing something else, which is an interesting story in itself, but it's also inherently going to be something that's more accessible to people that weren't deeply into comics before this. In fact, I hadn't actually read a new comic book for about a year before this came out, so I wasn't 100% up to date on everything that was going on, but it was still really easy to read. But that is enough on the hypotheticals of who you people who have actually read this thing might be. Let's actually talk about this comic. I think the plot would probably be best described as eclectic. There's just a lot going on. The first four issues are essentially just four different scenes interweaving with each other and by the end of it you kind of have worked out what's going on but the process is very non-linear. And then in the last issue Loki is a cowboy. Even if you just flip through any one of the issues, you can see that there's a lot going on. All the pages are packed with panels and speech bubbles. There's relatively few splash pages, so that's an image that takes up the entirety of one or two pages, which kind of serve to slow down the pace a little bit and emphasize a single moment. And where we do get them, it's usually focused on Loki, just so we can see how good he looks in whatever he's currently wearing. I think the only double page splash we get is when Loki enters the House of Ideas and it's there to give us an impression of how huge this place is. There's also the fact that Loki is present as a first person narrator in a lot of the scenes, which means we often get Loki's personal narration as well as whatever conversation's going on at the same time. So we have two threads to follow as an audience. And it is well written, so it's not as if it's confusing, but there is a real sense of confusion. As a writer, Kibblesmith doesn't let us feel lost for long, just long enough for us as readers to get a sense of the twistiness of the plot and how confused Loki himself is within it. With all that in mind, I'm not going to go through this issue by issue, but instead I'm going to look at the main questions this asks about Loki's character, and if and what it has to say about him that's new and interesting. The series opens up with Loki as a king, or at least kind of. While we know that Loki has taken the position of king after killing his dad, the first image we get is really Loki's empty throne with the note, be right back. And it's interesting because right from the beginning of the conception of his character, his motivation has kind of been world domination and competing with his brother Thor for the throne of Asgard. And yet here he is, having got everything he's been trying to get for the last few decades. And now instead of being a king, he's decided to go off and do something else entirely. He's actually gambling at a casino, which is interesting because this scene seems to have been taken directly from the first Iron Man movie. We see Loki rolling the dice, which is literally a direct parallel, visual parallel, to that first scene in Iron Man. He then turns around and audaciously flirts with all the pretty women in the vicinity in a scene that makes me want to find a massive stick and hit him over the head with it. But regardless of how I feel about it, it is another direct parallel. But why? 
Obviously, Iron Man does actually turn up in the comic later, and Loki refers to him kind of as the king of Midgard. So why does he do that? Why are there these parallels between Loki and Tony Stark, explicitly placing them both as kings? Why are we meant to see them as the same, and why does Loki see them as the same? What does it mean to be a king in this context? And I think the answer to that is in Beowulf. That is an Anglo-Saxon poem about the adventures of an old-timey hero known as Beowulf. And don't worry, I'm not going to get like hugely nerdy about it, because I don't know if you've read Beowulf, I don't know if Loki's read Beowulf, I don't know if Daniel Kibblesmith has even read Beowulf. But I do know that I have read Beowulf many times, and the parallels are very interesting, even if they're not deliberate. There's this idea of king versus hero. A hero can go off and do stupid things like fight a monster in single combat, whether that's Grendel from Beowulf or Armadillo in what is supposedly Tony Stark's casino. When you're a hero, self-sacrifice looks like putting your life in danger in order to defeat some monster. When you're a king, self-sacrifice looks like not doing those things, as Thor points out to Loki. When you're a king, you have to be more responsible. You can't go out being a hero and killing monsters and potentially dying, leaving your people without a king to rule them, whether you're Beowulf king of the Yeats or Loki king of Jotunheim. And I think that's the parallel that both Loki himself sees between him and Tony Stark and that we as readers are meant to see with our knowledge not only of the universe this story is existing in, but also of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and other things. I am sorry, I know that reference to Beowulf was probably not necessary. I just think it's so cool that the same idea is being explored both in this comic from 2019 and in an old English epic poem from literally centuries ago. And so, despite the fact that wanting a throne has been a big part of Loki's character for a very long time, it kind of seems like he's not very good at the job. And I mean, obviously he isn't. Being a king means being responsible and stable, and Loki is none of those things. He's one of the world's most famous liars, he's notoriously hard to pin down, he's always plotting and scheming some way to escape the consequences of his actions, and even in the most generous portrayals of his character, by his very nature and by necessity, he kind of has to be very flexible. And literally none of that lends itself to good kingship. Sitting in one place and listening to other people's largely inconsequential bullshit is just not a job I would hire Loki for based on his CV, you know? So I do love that this series asks the question, what would Loki actually do with a throne? And the answer is, get bored and go and do something else that's more fun. It's a similar vibe to Thor Ragnarok, in which Loki gets the throne and is actually just entirely uninterested in anything involved in being a king. And I'm so into the fact that people are actually exploring this idea now. I think I started thinking about this when I read this one fanfiction at about 18, in which Loki was only motivated by duty to Asgard, and he ends up becoming the king, and then also solving problems like world hunger and also death. And it was a very interesting idea, and very well written, but I mean, I was only really reading it for the elusive background lesbians, and I don't think it's necessarily how I would interpret Loki's character. Aside from the fact that Loki ended up getting a cautionary marriage with one of the elusive background lesbians, proving that he could somehow bring about world peace but do absolutely nothing to end homophobia, the point here is that I think the only real conclusion you can come to about Loki's character is that he is just not suited to be a king. Which then raises the question, why was that ever his motivation? In-universe, the answer seems to be, 
well, he was jealous of Thor. He wanted all the love and affection that Thor got, and becoming king seemed like the obvious route to getting that. But stepping outside the universe for a second, it's also just because world domination is the conventional motivation for any good villain. And Loki was originally conceived of as your archetypal comic book villain. And I think, at least in part, this is just because of the way comic books have developed. It started off as a medium that told pretty conventional stories. That's not that they were all the same, but often it was just different flavours of a story that we're familiar with. To be very clear, that's not a bad thing. Human storytelling has, for a very long time, been conventional. And by that, I mean there's a lot of different plots and ideas and characters that you see repeated over and over again in a lot of different places and formats. Our current taste for variance and diversity in our storytelling is kind of a new thing. And I don't think it's always a good thing. Our current obsession with spoilers and the idea that a story has to be shocking to be good does not always result in good stories. But in order to keep up with that kind of audience, comic books kind of had to take on more complex storylines, more complex continuity, and also characters that are just a little bit more fleshed out and human than they were before, including the villains. I'm not saying three-dimensional characters are exactly new to comics. The Demon in a Bottle storyline that talked about Tony Stark's issues with substance abuse actually came out in the late 70s, I think. But I think the point stands that comic book audiences nowadays want something more than just the good guy beats the shit out of the bad guy. There's also just the fact that keeping the same characters alive and the same age for decades presents some kind of continuity issues. So what exactly is the point here and why is it relevant to this Loki comic? Because while these issues are usually dealt with by retconning older stories or using a floating timeline that says all of this stuff happened in the last 10 years, this comic instead says that there are sentient beings that have been making this all happen this entire time. So while these problems are usually dealt with by just pretending they are not problems, this series instead takes the quirks of writing within a comic book universe that has existed for decades and plays with it and makes it part of the story. Again, this isn't exactly unprecedented, people have definitely done similar things before, but I think it's a really fun idea and I love the fact that Loki is in a unique position to see this process happening and understand it in any capacity. And it's not made 100% clear exactly why that is. Presumably as the god or goddess of stories, Loki can just see this kind of thing more easily than other people would be able to. But he also says multiple times that he's not sure that he is the god of stories anymore. In the final issue, instead he identifies himself as the god of outcasts, which is a fairly common interpretation of his character, both in terms of mythology and comics, and also elsewhere. While the heroes have kind of always been in that territory, Loki has had to work his way there from being a villain. And so while the heroes inherently have their position in the Hall of Ideas, just by being themselves, Loki has to make the conscious decision. And of course, this is kind of a deal with the devil in reverse, in that Loki is kind of the devil and he has to make a deal in order to become the hero. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I do think that since Agent of Asgard, Loki has been all about consciously changing his own story. And so this is just kind of an extension of that. Loki gets to write his own story, he gets a say in it. And we very much see that in the final issue, we see him breaking out of the box of genre in that he's taken out of the role of supervillain in a superhero comic and becomes the devil in a western. He also literally breaks out of a cell and breaks the fourth wall in the process. We're not even really told why he's in the cell other than undefined villainy, and Loki himself tells us that since he's not a villain anymore, he can just get out at any time. 
I'm not going to lie, it took me quite a while to get my head around the level of metaphor that was going on in the final issue. But hey, it gives me something to really dig my teeth into in this podcast episode. And I think the artwork actually really helps you out here. There's a big contrast between the very hectic and overlapping panels of the kind of Western section of it compared to the very regular and very plain panels of the interview section. And so to try and kind of sum up everything I've just thrown at you, Loki is a character that's had to change a lot in order to answer to what the audience wants from him. Both because people want more understandable and sympathetic villains in general, but also because people want a more sympathetic Loki. But you can't just ignore his past as a straight-up villain. And in this series, this is done, at least in part, by playing around with the idea of stories themselves. Playing around with ideas of what is a hero, what is a villain, and what do you do when a story reaches its natural conclusion. And there are a couple of ways you can deal with this. You can tell us that they lived happily ever after, but that's not a very good way to continue telling good stories. So if you want to continue telling good stories, you have to find new stories to tell. And here that's done on both a literal level in that Loki reaches his ultimate goal and is not happy, and also on a symbolic level in that Loki is literally handed more stories to write by the Children of Eternity. But now I want to move from talking about this on a purely plot level to moving into looking really close at Loki's character. And while moving from being a villain to a hero, or at least a more complex villain, creates its own plot tensions, it's obviously going to create tensions for a character. If they believe they've become a better person, they're going to have to reckon with a dark past. Which leads me on to my very favourite thing to talk about in the world, which is Loki angst. You guys, not to be weird about it, but when I say that this is literally all I think about, I am not exaggerating. The title of my final year dissertation is literally Loki's experience of pain and physical humiliation. Since his rebirth after Siege, Loki has had all kinds of identity crises, and I find it so compelling that this often involves eating or being eaten. The first occurrence of this is obviously in Journey into Mystery, when Loki literally eats the magpie Icol, thus eliminating his younger self and taking over his body. There's also one of the covers for Loki Agent of Asgard, which shows King Loki taking a massive gory bite out of Agent Loki. And more immediately relevant to this series, in War of the Realms, Loki is eaten by his father and then bursts out of his stomach, thus dealing with all of those daddy issues, both symbolically and very literally. And while these are all very symbolically relevant, I love that there's a physical element to it. It's always kind of gory. Loki emerges from eating Icol with blood splattered all around his mouth. And we also get a huge crunch when Laufey bites into Loki. At this point, I really do feel like I need to reiterate that I promise this isn't weird. It's just an image that hits very hard on a multitude of levels. But to turn back to Loki Volume 3 specifically, the tone here isn't straight up angst. Generally speaking, this is quite a light-hearted comic, and when Loki does talk about these experiences, it's mostly through jokes. Loki jokingly tells one of the generic hot ladies at the casino that she can devour him anytime, which... Anyway, he also jokes that he couldn't have just stuck to one drink because it might have been lonely and that stomachs are a lonely place. I'm not even going to get into how realistic this might be to an actual human experience, but it does allow the comic to maintain its comedic tone while still touching on Loki's existential dread. In a lot of ways, that kind of haunted tone is transferred from Loki to the storyline between Nightmare and Megan and Robin. 
In a lot of ways, this whole subplot reminded me of the Dreaming, Neil Gaiman's comic from the 90s. Having said that, that kind of feels like an inane statement, because like, obviously. But I'm mostly referring to the way that it uses dreaming and the surreality of dreaming to explore very human fears and emotions. And so that kind of mood is established before we get to the point where Loki is facing off against Nightmare, and thus faced with what is presumed to be his deepest fear, that he never escaped Laufey's gut. Which, I mean, I'm not saying Freud was right, but maybe sometimes he had a point. To be very clear, I have never read anything Freud wrote, but you know, the symbolism here. Even if in this case it's very literal, the fear of being consumed by one's father is not entirely unrelatable. But of course, that isn't Loki's actual deepest fear, and it turns out that he is literally living his nightmare right this second in his real life. Which is kind of said in a funny way, but the depth to that. What exactly is it about Loki's everyday life that has him thinking he's living in his own literal nightmare? Well, I guess he kind of literally tells us, while he's talking to Thor in the library, he says that he doesn't feel that he's the god of lies, or the god of evil, or even the god of stories anymore. What Loki fears is a loss of identity, but what exactly is that identity? I think in the end this comes down to the fact that Loki is almost invariably the unknown variable, and there's no real variety in living happily ever after. If we want to get really metatextual with it, Loki is an incarnation of chaos, which means any kind of stability isn't really going to suit him. In Thor The Dark World, he says that satisfaction is not in his nature, and that's because getting what you want is the end of the story and thus the end of change. And if nothing else, Loki is changeable. There is no ending that would satisfy him. Loki also recasts himself as the god of outcasts, which as I said, is not exactly a new idea but has specific relevance to this story. Typically Loki works in the shadows and from the sidelines, which is not something you can do while you're sitting on a massive golden throne. And so to circle back to my very first point, becoming king means becoming stable and static, and also coming into a position of prominence, which is kind of just antithetical to everything that Loki is. And so Loki can't really become king without sacrificing himself to some extent. And this series doesn't exactly come up with a solution or a balance for this, and while I'm mostly interested in talking about what is here rather than what we don't have, it's probably important to keep in mind that this series was cut off quite abruptly. So I'm gonna kind of briefly get into some of my theories about where this might have gone. Daniel Kibblesmith has actually given some clues about this on Twitter, and from the specific pages he mentioned, it seems likely that we were going to get some kind of worthy Loki storyline, which is also hinted at by the cover of the first issue. In fact, in the current run of Thor comics, we actually do see Loki lifting Mjolnir, which presumably would have tied into this comic. We also see that Thor was going to become something called the Unfather, which seems to be some hybrid between Thor and Ultron, which you can kind of get from the image of the Unfather on the final page of issue four, as well as Loki's mention of something called Mjoltron in the final issue. There's a few other mentions of minor details, like we might have got more Verity Willis, which would have been wonderful, and also something horrible happening to Durf, which can we not? But here's a theory. We do see Thor struggling to lift Mjolnir in the current run of Thor comics, while Loki seems to become worthy, so maybe Mjolnir becomes a symbol of heroism, and in becoming king, Thor is no longer worthy for it whereas Loki, stepping into the position of a hero, might just be. Obviously this is 100% speculation, we might still see this kind of plotline in the current Thor run, or in a renewed Loki series, who knows. 
If you guys have any different theories, please do let me know, I'd love to hear them. And on a final note before I shut up, Daniel Kibblesmith also mentioned on Twitter an anagram in this comic that no one has found yet. And I still haven't found it. And believe me, I have been trying. So if anyone else wants to try and have a look, I would be very grateful and let me know if you find anything. The only other clue we've been given is that he might also possibly have used it in a Deadpool comic if given the chance. My interpretation of that is that it's probably something that refers to breaking the fourth wall. But also it could not mean that, so who knows. So I'll leave you with that to ponder over. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you do figure out the anagram, please let me know. Or even if you have something else to say, I'll probably care less, but still. You can reach me at Loki Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Tumblr. Or you can email me at thelokipodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again to Lauren for my beautiful cover art. I'm still obsessed. And here's a new thing. I've recently acquired an Apple product for the first time in my life, and I can't really work out how it works, but you might know. So please consider leaving a review for me on iTunes. I would really appreciate it, and I can probably work out how to see them. In all sincerity, if you do enjoy this podcast and want to support it, that's probably the best way to do it. I also really like to know how you guys are feeling about this, and... It's nice when people say nice things about me. And I think that's everything. Oh, yeah, if anyone actually knows what an anagram is, please let me know. I have no goddamn clue.